From Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. Coming to you live from the Great White North in my cozy little studio in the Liberty Village neighborhood of Toronto, Canada, and our flagship station. Welcome aboard. It is so good to be here. Antonio Paris, a professor of astronomy at St. Petersburg College and the director of planetarium and space programs at the Museum of Science and Industry in Tampa, is standing by, and we'll get to him shortly to discuss how to get to Mars, how to build a colony on Mars, and uh, the absolute necessity of getting there, and getting there quickly, in advance of some cataclysmic event, some extinction event here on Earth, which of course is very timely for a couple of reasons. First of all, water has been found on Mars. Very timely indeed. Uh, let me just point out uh, that Ian Robertson is here, of course, in the other studio, twisting the knobs and the dials, uh, essentially piloting uh, this vessel as we uh, fly on through till morning, and Albert Vinzel, of course, is here running our Hangout on Air, or HOA. And if you want to watch the live stream of the program, go to my Twitter feed, at Richard Serrett. S as in Simon, Y because I love you, R-E-T-T, at Richard Serrett. And you click on the tweet uh, near the top of the stream, and it has an HOA link in it. You just click on that, and voila! Welcome to the Inner Sanctum, and thanks for flying the friendly skies of the Conspiracy Show. So you'll, you'll see me, and you'll be able to see Antonio Paris on his webcam, we hope. Uh, Alright, so, um, tonight we've got uh, the Blood Moon, the final tetrad of the Blood Moons, and uh, the Lunar Eclipse, a Supermoon, uh, all wrapped up, as I said, into this apocalyptic talk. Uh, the Internet has been on fire with this for some time. And uh, we'll find out from Antonio Paris what he has to say about it. Let me just mention, my word, he's a very interesting man with some very heavy credentials. He is, as I mentioned, a professor of astronomy at St. Petersburg College, the director of planetarium and space programs at the Museum of Science and Industry in Tampa, Florida. Sorry to hear, uh, he may be sorry to hear that our Blue Jays <laughs> just swept the Tampa Bay Rays. Uh, just my luck, right? The, it's been a 23-year drought since the Blue Jays have been in postseason, and this may be the year that everything ends, <laughs> so we'll never see October. All right, uh, back to uh, Antonio. His, uh, his course uh, centers on a survey of astronomy and an introduction to the characteristics, origin, and evolution of the solar system, galaxies, and the universe. Additionally... He incorporates ancient astronomy, cosmology, astrophysics, interstellar travel, and the search for life in the universe into his lectures. Professor Paris, moreover, is the chief scientist at the Center for Planetary Science, a science outreach program promoting astronomy, planetary science, and astrophysics to the next generation of space explorers. He has a Master's of Science in Planetary Science from the American Public University and was awarded a Bronze Star Medal for Valor while serving as a U.S. Army intelligence officer in Iraq. My word! Professor Paris' latest publication is The Physiological and Psychological Aspects of Sending Humans to Mars, published in the Washington Academy of Sciences in 2015. His research centers on the implications of prolonged spaceflight, 
which includes radiation, the cardiovascular system in space, and long-term nutritional concerns in a microgravity environment. He's the author of two books, Aerial Phenomena and Space Science. Additionally, he's also the director-producer for the documentaries Area 51, A History of This Reclusive Base, and Skinwalker. He's appeared in dozens of radio show web, uh, shows, webcasts, and TV shows, including Unsealed and Close Encounters, and now he's right here on The Conspiracy Show. Professor Paris, I presume, how are you? I'm doing pretty good. I hope you can hear me fine. Uh, indeed, I can, and uh, welcome to our, our Hangout on Air as well. All yeah, right. no, thanks for the invite. My, my, what a uh, an incredible resume you have. Um, I... I I guess I'm going to just jump right in, and I'm going to ask you, and of course that is the uh, the blood moon, the final in this tetrad of four blood moons. And of course you know all too well the chatter out there that this somehow is a harbinger, uh, you know, a heavenly sign uh, that something evil this way comes. <laughs> it's a really exciting event. It doesn't happen too often, you know, about every 33 years. But it's happened already four times in the last hundred years, and we're still here, right? So right. But you um, must admit yeah, that you know, there is another layer to this, uh, Professor Paris. Right. The other layer being that okay, we've had four of them though in a fairly like within eighteen months, and mm-hmm. and coincidentally they happen to fall on Jewish high holidays, which is you know. And now, granted, the Hebrew calendar is a lunar calendar. So that makes sense. But it, I mean, that's an extra layer there that is, that makes this far more out of the ordinary than just something that happens every 33 years. Wouldn't yeah, you agree? It, 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 yeah, it, it, I, I agree with you. It is, in a sense, mysterious. It does have a little, uh, a sense of excitement to it. And we can, I can, we can spend hours just talking about what other coincidences could transpire during these four eclipses. But, but you know, as a scientist, I, I feel pretty comfortable that, you know, Nothing's going to happen. There's there's no science that any catastrophic events, as far as I know, are, are in the near future. Um, are there coincidences? Yeah, sure. You know, can I say the blood moon is why the Tampa Bay lost today? I can say that too all day. Um, Could have something to do with Josh it, Donaldson. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's it's fun to talk about what could and could not happen, but. You know, as a scientist uh, and as a skeptic, I look at the data, and there's really, really no hard science to back up any of that stuff. All right. So uh, I'm sure you know we'll 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 touch on this again uh, throughout the hour yeah, at sure. some point. But uh, you do uh, uh, talk about extinction events. This uh, this is something you are yeah, sure. uh, concerned about. Now, uh, mm-hmm. aside from you know the, the, these harbingers or heavenly signs, what in particular has you most concerned? Uh, in terms of an extinction event, is it a, a, a comet? Is it an asteroid collision? What's out there lurking I, I, in the blackness I, I would of space? Say, I would say in the near future, what really concerns me more is probably a human, uh, human, uh, you know, extinction event. Whether it's a virus, a disease, war, war, especially, especially in our population. But if we pull that out of the side, the human factor. Um, you know, the, the, the Earth has seen past extinction events, at least five in the last 400 million years. I would say that the most concerned right now would probably be uh, an impactor, like an asteroid or a comet. And recently, scientists like myself have been worried about a potential gamma ray burst or even a corona mass ejection 
could potentially cause a, uh, a mass extinction event. So uh, uh, an EMP, uh, another Carrington mm-hmm. event that uh, that happened in the 19th century that at that time wasn't even noticed uh, aside from the fact that it knocked out the telegraph system. But, of course, now, of course, we're so dependent on electronics that I've mm-hmm. heard uh, literally, you know, within six months of such an event, you could have 90% of the world's population extinct. That's how dependent we are on electricity. I totally agree with you. Uh, we're we're all connected with with electricity, but it's probably more than that. You know, um, how we power our houses, hospitals, you name it. Everything depends on electricity, and and if those things go, I mean, literally within months, millions and millions of people will die. And I think the the most dangerous thing about that is is the human factor. Humans humans will have to fight for survival, and that's that's basically where the famine and destruction comes. Will be the human to human contact and the, the after effects of any, any type of tragedy. We've seen it in Katrina. We've seen it in uh, earthquakes where it's, it's the human, uh, it's, it's actually the humans that are more of a threat than the post event itself. Right. I agree with you. You know, people are fond of mm-hmm. saying things like, oh, man is at his best when things are at their worst. Well, that's true for about the first 24 hours. And exactly. then things get ugly, don't they? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we saw that here in Florida, in the uh, you know, during Katrina and New Orleans, where um, it was not you know the hurricane did kill a lot of people, but it was it was the the rioting, the after effects that really caused a lot of damage itself. And it's if you go to New Orleans now, a lot of that stuff is still has not been uh, repaired. It, it still looks like the hurricane was yesterday. Um, things have been abandoned, they're not being taken care of, and people are still sick. All right. So uh, a mass coronal ejection, certainly, uh, apparently we're mm-hmm. overdue for one of those. Um, sure. w- but out there, I mean, since you are, uh, well, we- we've got the uh, the music percolating up here, so we'll take a time out. We'll, we'll talk uh, more about possible ex- extinction events, which uh, really provide the impetus for us getting off planet as quickly as possible, and uh, that would be the red planet. We'll talk about how we can manage to do that in a hurry. My conversation with Professor Antonio Paris continues on the other side. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show, and my name is Richard Serrett. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Just a reminder, Season 4 of the television program, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett, debuting soon across Canada on Vision TV, season four, brand new episodes. Look for that. And I'll, uh, I'll keep trying, I'll try to, uh, to get an exact air date, uh, but just keep, uh, checking the local listings, as they say, of Vision TV. All right, uh, Professor Antonio Paris is with us, and we are talking about, uh, among other things, an extinction event. Um, and uh, which might, sort of, uh, in preparing for such an eventuality, might provide the impetus for us getting off planet and uh, colonizing Mars. Um, now, you, you mentioned the EMP, and, and we also talked about asteroids. Um, mm-hmm. Are there any particular uh, uh, rocks out there uh, that that concern you? That uh, I mean, we occasionally hear of. Uh, a near miss, which could be, you know, several hundred mm-hmm. thousand miles. But is there anything else um, on, looming on the horizon you're even mildly concerned about? No, well, probably about the year 2029, 2030, there's a, 
relatively decent size uh, asteroid called Apophis, and it's about 325 meters. So that's that's decent enough to cause some catastrophic uh, impact here, um, but it's it's not big for an uh, you know an extinction event. It's, it's not it's a planet killer. Up. It's not a planet yeah, killer. Yeah, it'll, it'll miss us by about 31, about 19,000 miles. Uh, so it's, you know, that's relatively close. Um, but as far as we know on the horizon, and I, I've been studying uh, near-Earth objects, which, you know, NEOs for a while, and I, there are really not many that, you know, that, that really concern me right now. But, that, you know, that, that's not to point out that there are none that we don't see. There, you know, there could be a lot of them that are, are behind the sun, which is very, very difficult for us to see. And those are the ones we really worry about. You know, we know the ones that we can see, but it's the ones that we cannot see are the ones that are potential catastrophic. Um, for something that, that's, that's catastrophic would be something at least one mile wide. Um, that's something that, that'll probably cause mass extension. But, you know, if, if history shows, you know, there's always a, a small survivability rate. So mankind perhaps could survive. Um, if we stay uh, somewhere deep enough for, for a, a period long of time where the radiation dissipates um, and the cloud cover dissipates. But if, if, if you notice in the last, you know, 400 million years, there's, there's been five massive extinction events, but, but somehow nature, at least the small creatures, were able to survive and flourish again. So, you know, if there was a mass extinction event in the future, I, I think there's a good chance that um, some some species will still survive, but nevertheless, it, there comes at a point. You know, we estimate at least Earth has at least 600 million to perhaps one billion years left before the sun begins to grow, and uh, we we lose the water, we lose the oceans, we lose the atmosphere. So that's some time for us to think about and contemplate where we need to go to survive as a species. And you mentioned that uh, eventually we will have to emigrate off the planet. Um, and well, there's so, a line of so thinking that that is sort of our destiny too, uh, to spread yeah. our seed out there. Uh, we would have to if, if, if we're going to survive as a human species, because Earth, Earth, Earth is 4.5 billion years old, and when you look at it, it's, it's basically on Social Security right now. It's retired. It's on Social Security, and 600 million years in the timeline is not a lot, you know, compared to the to the uh, uh, age of the universe. Mars. Mars is a good first stop. It's like, you know, that pit stop on your way to uh, Disney or, where, you know, where your family vacation is. But eventually uh, the red giant will also make Mars uh, not hospitable. It's, it's, it already has a thin atmosphere. It doesn't have a, uh, a warm core, thus no magnetosphere. So the first colonies on Mars will have a lot of stuff on their plate. You know, radiation is going to be a major concern. Uh, the Martian regolith and dust is very dangerous. How so? Uh, How so? Into, yeah, well, if it, 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 it gets into the lung system, it's, it's basically carbon dioxide glass that you're breathing. Carbon so, dioxide and, and glass. Yeah, and, wow. and it also it's really destructive on the rovers, if you notice. Uh, um, so the solar panels will be basically useless. The good thing about Mars is it has a lot of winds, so it is it does clean off a lot of the solar panels. All right, what do you make of this? Uh, excuse me, Professor Paris. This uh, yeah, having you on it quite timely because uh, according to some reports, NASA tomorrow will announce that they have discovered water on the red planet. How mm -hmm. important is that uh, to uh, for future plans of, of, of colonization? 
it's very important that water water can be used for so many things. Let's not even talk about drinking and potable water, but water can, the hydrogen can be used for power. Uh, the oxygen itself can be extracted from the water. So it has multiple uses. Um, I, I don't know what they're going to announce tomorrow. I, I think I'm leaning on what you're saying. I, I, I think that's what it is. It's some type of uh, water was found or at least ancient evidence of water, um, perhaps really deep in the regolith. Uh, it, with such a thin atmosphere, the only possible places where water can survive, where, where it's still intact, is probably really deep fissures or, or uh, craters where there perhaps might be some still perpetual darkness, like on the moon, and perhaps the, the water there can, can survive. Uh, but the thin atmosphere and the low pressure really makes it almost impossible for water on the surface to, to, uh, to exist. That's uh, not to say it could be deep in the water or something. It's kind of cool, but um, if that's the, if that's tomorrow's announcement, that's that's huge. That uh, that makes it a little easier for humans to survive on the red planet. Uh, how important would the existence of water be on the planet if we aim? And I don't know if this is uh, achievable. And I'm projecting, you know, hundreds of hundreds of years into the future. But how important mm-hmm. is water uh, for terraforming a planet? And maybe you can explain it, what in terraforming uh, is. Yeah, terraforming is is trying to uh, reverse at least the, the the process of an atmosphere being degraded. And making the atmosphere uh, hospital again, you know, that's basically lots of water in the atmosphere. Um, and the difficulty of that is is that we're, we're, it's still a, a race against a dying planet. The planet itself is geologically dead, um, uh, and that's because it's, it no longer has a warm core. A warm core is necessary because it's actually it's what gives us a magnetosphere here on Earth. Without the magnetosphere... Uh, we will become geologically dead like Mars. So, so it's just a rock, essentially. It's a it's a big rock in space. It's yeah, basically that's what it is. And, and people always ask me, why is it geologically dead? Well, it's smaller than Earth. And the compare a good analogy is is if you have a large potato and a small potato, and you put them in a microwave and you take them out, uh, Mars is a small potato. It's going to cool a lot quicker than the larger planet like Earth. So Mars is already cooled off. It's, it's lost its warm core. Uh, it's geologically dead, and thus the chain reaction begins of of a, of a planet losing its atmosphere, uh, losing its pressure, uh, becoming exposed to solar winds and radiation. So it's it sounds like you're saying it's beyond the point of no return. It's probably beyond the point of no return, and. And uh, most of the research I've done, I think Mars will be the pit stop for something further. Perhaps the, the moons of uh, of Jupiter, like Europa, um, potentially lots of water there. And, and as you know, the mission to Europa just got approved. So hopefully in about 11, 15 years, we'll finally reach that, that moon. But eventually, uh, I, I think people, it is possible. It is possible. And there's a lot of research and a lot of papers have written on territory Mars. But the energy requirements involved. Um, and the time necessary, literally, it'll literally take thousands of years. It's, it's not like the movie uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger was in, with, they terraformed it in within 20 minutes. Oh, but that's that's based on, that's is, is that taking into account Moore's Law? Yeah, exactly. It's, you, got, you, we're fi- you just said it, we're, we're, we're fighting against something that, that's 
geologically dead. I don't think we'll have the energy resources to uh, to terraform a planet where we can use that same amount of, of energy to perhaps, in my opinion, is it build interstellar or intergalactic spacecraft and build generation ships, generational ships. And I think that's I think that will probably be the only way for a human species to survive in the long term. Right. So then why Mars? It's it, Because it's an intermediate measure? I think it's not just more... It's it's basically the next step in exploration. As, as humans, uh, we are explorers, and the red, red Mars is the next stop. And that's basically... You know, it, it, it involves everything from politics to science to, you know, uh, human endeavors. So you put all those things involved... We, you know, we don't want to go to the moon. We've been there already. Um, Jupiter is way too far for right now for humans to, to actually even contemplate that trip. But Mars is the next step for, for human, for, and I like to use the word exploration, quote unquote exploration. Um, but as I stressed earlier, I don't think we can survive there for too long. Uh, anything, any human, ha- anything over there would have to be artificial. We have to live in habitats, perhaps underground. Um, there's some research now in living in ancient lava tubes uh, or caverns where we can be protected by radiation. But that's basically it, guys. It's it's where we're we're still going to live in, in what they call life in a can. Um, you know, the excursions outdoors have to be limited. Um, replenishment is going to be very important. Uh, could so we could that- we build? habitats on the moon where we could grow food in fact there's a um, there's a movie out now um, about yeah. about this very thing mars and, and an astronaut lands there they he's been written off for, for dead he shows up on the radar and he's yeah. he's got a greenhouse going and and, and so forth yeah hydropods are, are are possible you know the space station doesn't um and they're relatively easy you know at the museum and industry where I work at, we have one where the USF built one for a potential uh, mission to Mars. So it's pretty neat. It is, they're easy to build, um, very self-sufficient. And so, yeah, that, that we would have to. We would have to build and grow our own food. Uh, we, we would have to extract the oxygen and water from the atmosphere or the regolith because launching spacecraft and rockets back and forth are, are, are very expensive. How long does the so, trip take you know, uh, using good old rocket fuel? How long does that trip to Mars take? Six months? It takes about six six months, uh, you know, depending on, the, on how the, the planets are aligned. Um, there is talk about new technology to perhaps you can get it in about three to four months, but that's still on paper. Orion, um, the Orion mission is, 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 they mentioned six to eight months, depending on the payload, but, but it's about six to eight months to get there. Um, a minimum stay of about a year and a half because the planets will have to be aligned again in another six journey, another six months return. So you're looking about almost three years for a round trip mission. Um, the human body, though, is the human body uh, designed to take? Uh, it's not. It's not. What it's happens not. to the human um, body? What's going to happen to a human body, even one that's in great, even if someone is in top physical condition? What's going to happen? You know, three months or six months out. Six months back. Well, basically, basically, the body just starts to degrade. There's, um, you know, one of the, the most important and uh, things that we have to worry about on a mission to Mars is radiation. And when, Curi- the, when Curiosity was en route to, to Mars a few years ago, it detected and recorded um, within the six months enough radiation that it actually exceeded the life, the, uh, 
the uh, career of a of an ast- of an astro astronaut twenty years. So we need to figure out how to protect the astronauts uh, heading there. And there's a lot of ways uh, the spacecraft could be built. It could be surrounded by a magnetic field, um, perhaps water tanks, which which are do pretty well in, in absorbing radiation. But I think that in a micro microgravity environment, the body really begins to deteriorate. Um, first one is the muscular musculoskeletal system. The body is it, here on Earth. We have gravity. We're walking. We build muscle. In space, that does not happen. So the body basically uh, degrades. It's called atrophy. And the muscles degrade. The bones begin to get thinner. They, uh, they frizzle out. Lack of vitamin D. Uh, cataracts are very, very important. The Apollo astronauts, within hours of, of being on the moon, complained of painful cataracts, um, flashes of light. One of them explained it was like somebody punching them in the face constantly. That's because the radiation was being disposed into the cataracts. Um, and so you're going to age. Too. A person would age rapidly. It would it would a knock off would, decades off of their life. I'm guessing. Yeah, and I, I think one of the most critical components of long-term space travel is something called we call the orthostatic intolerance. And basically, it's almost like you, you, when you and I sleep for too long, right? We, we could barely get out of bed, right? Uh, because the muscles basically began to waste away. Right. So imagine being in zero gravity, excuse me, microgravity for six to eight months. Um, you're not just going to pop up, pop open the hatch and expect to walk. You, you see the astronauts come back to Earth after just a few months in space from the space station and they're being carried out, right? They're on wheelchairs. Um, because they cannot walk when they, when they come back to normal gravity. So a long-term mission to, to Mars, uh, they're going to have difficulties. They're not just going to pop open the hatch and start researching. Well, They'll it, think about it's, it sounds, how their bodies are acclimated. It sounds, yeah. it sounds like you know the odds are just stacked against us. I mean, it doesn't sound like uh, it's certainly not a picnic. I mean, I don't know. There was a lot of no, romantic. Don't, don't, don't get me wrong. It could be done. There's a lot of preventers, prevention strategies uh, that will be taking. You know, they will be doing exercises, uh, taking uh, supplements and things like that. But nevertheless, you know, the, the six months, eight months there, it, it will have. We're still learning a lot about humans in uh, zero gravity. And everything begins to shrink. The okay. heart begins to shrink. All right. Uh, we have. Okay, let me just uh, jump in here, uh, Antonio. We're coming into a a break here. We'll come back and continue to discuss the mission to Mars with Professor Antonio Paris right here on The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. Different views make great conversation. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. All right, welcome back. And the website is strangeplanet.ca, strangeplanet.ca or strangeplanet.tv. Either of those will get you there. Antonio Paris uh, is with us, professor of astronomy at St. Petersburg College, director of planetarium and space programs at the Museum of Science and Industry in Tampa. And he is also the chief scientist at the Center for Planetary Science. All right, so you know, you, I got to be honest. You're not painting a very rosy picture. Uh, <laughs> uh, I mean, I I would certainly. I mean, there was a lot of uh, people sign, you know, volunteering and want they wanted to be yeah. the pioneers that were going to land on Mars. And uh, boy, oh boy, I tell you, uh, after listening to, I know. I mean, I would not easy. sign yeah. up for that. I would not want to 
pull the short straw on that assignment. It sounds like hell, quite frankly. It sounds like hell. For the listeners right here, I want you to go outside. I want you to go to your car, tint the windows, and I want you to sit in your car without getting out for eight months. If you can do that, if you can sit in your car with tinted windows for eight months without getting out, you are a prime candidate for the uh, Mars mission. So you think the first habitats are going to be that small? Um, they will have to. An ideal mission to Mars would be to send unmanned, drop the pods, and um, eventually when the first colony arrives, there's something to for them to live in. Um, but eventually it's going to be a, a slightly larger Apollo mission. The, 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 habit, the spacecraft becomes the habitat at the end. The biggest concern and the biggest issue, unfortunately, is money. It takes billions and billions and billions of dollars to launch a spacecraft into orbit and send it to Mars. That's the biggest drawback. If money was not a concern, there'd be rockets launching every hour, right, to Mars. That's the biggest concern. It's a big issue when it comes to money and then selecting the right people from a physiological and psychological perspective. One thing we didn't mention is the psychology of being in a tin can for three years, that's going to have a toll on people. We, we've seen sailors and submarines go crazy. We've seen uh, explorers up in the Arctic spending years alone go crazy. So a psychological screening for a mission to Mars is also uh, another big step. How many would you send up the first time? I think uh, Orion's shooting for four to six. They really haven't decided. And then would they be uh, separated in their individual pods or would they be able to interact? I, I think they would not be in the individual pods. I think it would be one large habitat that was probably built there, kind of like Legos, little by little. Okay. Um, I'm not, I'm not sure what's little. happening with your with your phone, Professor Paris, but I keep hearing a, a sounds like you're pushing a, a a button and it keeps cutting out. I'm not sure what's happening. How about now? Is this better? So far, we'll see. Okay. Okay. So, so the, um, I the, think I think I think an inflatable habitats. They're working on inflatable habitats where. Um, think of them like like big inflatable domes that are, that are can be protected by micrometeorites um, and some radiation exposure will probably be our best bet. Um, they're easy to stow, and once you get there, you can inflate these uh, habitats, and that that's probably the way to go. Okay, so uh, now I'm feeling a little better. Now it sounds like for the first four or six people, this Orion project, mm-hmm. it's going to be tough for them, but the the ones that come after. Uh, that will have a much larger habitat. Uh, it's going to yeah. get easier each time we go up. Is that the idea? Yeah, that's that's the intent. The intent is is uh, you know for each individual mission, it's kind of like the the International Space Station. It's built um, uh, per launch per payload, so it gets larger and larger and larger. Um, and as it gets larger, then uh, it's you know you have more crew members to, to man um, the habitats on Mars. I think initially it's going to be mostly scientists and doctors, engineers, uh, before you see any uh, families and things like that um, that are actually going to go there and, and die. I think most initial astronauts will return. It, um, I know there's some private entities out there that want to do a, a one-way mission to Mars. Uh, that's a possibility. Uh, so you know, give us a, give us some them. time markers here. Uh, first of all, uh, if you know all hands on deck and we put the necessary resources yeah. into this, how soon could we get this first 
mission to, manned mission to Mars where they, they start to lay down sort of the, the, the building blocks. How, how NASA, long? NASA's, NASA's hope, NASA's, uh, milestone right now is 2035. 2035, the Orion mission is, is off to Mars. Um, 2036, they, uh, it's boots on the ground and that's, that's their vision and that's kind of the, the, uh, the mile markers and the, that they set. Other companies out there like Mars One are, are a little earlier, 2025. Um, uh, you know, I like Mars One, but there's a lot of, uh, speculation whether or not it's, it's actually feasible. Okay, so uh, we were looking at 20, stuff. 20 years, 20 years outside. All right, we'll take another yeah, time that, out. We'll take another time, yeah, Professor Paris. That's about appropriate. Okay, we'll talk about uh, when we come back. We'll talk about you know what comes after 2025. How soon will we be sending populations up there? Will we have you know all the creature comforts up there? Swimming pools, uh, shopping malls. Uh, let's see where we're this where all this is headed. Uh, Professor uh, Paris, my guest, as we continue to discuss a mission to Mars. Back with more of the Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. Shaking the world and seeing what falls. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett. All right. Uh, the website for Professor Paris is planetary-science.org. Planetary-science.org. And we've also linked up to that. Uh, if you go to strangeplanet.ca and click on the uh, the radio uh, page for the conspiracy show. Uh, all right, so uh, 2025, 2035, in that window somewhere, we'll have boots on the ground, as you described it, and they'll be building these little uh, tin cans initially. Uh, but then from there, we could have inflatable, inflatable uh, domes, and uh, I mean that really opens up, uh, you know, the possibility in terms of, yeah. you know, we could have essentially uh, hotels up there. We could have swimming pools, uh, greenhouses. It could be quite comfortable. <laughs> It, it could be, yeah. You know, given enough energy and and necessary resources, after a couple of hundred years, of you could have a, a potential decent-sized colony up there. Um, I think the biggest drawback, and I should have mentioned this earlier, is reproduction. Uh, radiation has a real toll on sperm and, egg, uh, and eggs, and um, basically NASA has concluded that six months in space basically killed and destroyed uh, the testes, you know, the sperm cells in the testes. So oh, boy. All right. Well, how, how are we going to get around that one? Well, we, you know, believe it or not, and this might sound a little weird, but the NASA astronauts that go to the space station, um, from what I understand, is that they actually have their sperm cells uh, frozen so that when they return back to Earth, and that's not a conspiracy, that's actually true true science. Right. Okay. So if they come back to Earth, um, they do have a way of reproducing um, artificially. Yeah, but here but, on Earth, what about producing on the red planet? We don't know. We haven't we haven't done the science. We we tried to do the science with rats, and, and it's been inconclusive or or failed experiments. But it's uh, you know eight weeks. The science shows that after eight weeks in in uh, microgravity. Uh, the testes or the eggs on the females begin to get damaged by radiation. So that's that's an issue. That's an issue. If if we're going to survive as a species, how are we going to reproduce? Um, and we just 
there is no answer to that right now. Uh, it sounds like, you know, and I'm coming, th- I, th- I put everything through my, my faith filter and so forth, but uh, excuse yeah. me, I know you're a man of science, but it sounds to me like, I mean, we, uh, the big man in the sky just does not want us <laughs> out there spreading our seed. That's a possibility. We're, we're humans. We're, we're our, this is our home planet, our species. Um, it, it could be that nature has selected us to to be constrained to this planet. Um, All right. Well, let's assume you know, that we we find. Could, uh, yeah. we, let's assume we find a way around that. Um, yeah. Some sort of shielding mechanism or so forth. So you're saying that it, it would take a couple of hundred years before we could have a viable uh, population up there. Now, uh, yeah. w- what are we talking about? A thousand, two thousand? Uh, maybe, maybe a thousand or two. It all depends on are we there commercially, which probably would be faster if the commercial space industry um, figures out a way to make a profit and why we're there. They would do it a lot faster than the government, but easily, yes. Okay, let's 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 take this back. If we launch a crew of six, which seems about the right payload, once twice a year, so we've got what's that? Twelve, uh, twelve times ten, that's hundred and twenty. So yeah, in about hundred hundred years, you can easily get a thousand people up there. Wow, that's a long haul, isn't it? <laughs> I and mean, migration, it's not. It's not like we're going. It's not like we're packing up in our apartment and moving from Tampa to uh, Miami. It no, is, it is not. It is it dangerous. Is it's a dangerous trip. Um, there will be failures along the way. If you if you saw this year alone, would we lose about three or four launches? Right. Yes. SpaceX, uh, Orbital Sciences, all lost the spacecraft. So there will be failures along the way, um, and we learn from those failures. Hopefully, there are no human casualties on the way to Mars, but it's going to be slow. It's going to be really slow, and I think for you and I, uh, we'll still be around 2035 when the first humans uh, colonize Mars and return safely, hopefully. But isn't this but, all uh, assuming that there isn't some black swan uh, event? I'm not talking about a, uh, 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 an extinction event. I'm talking about some yeah. technological development. I had a well, I was hosting Coast recently, and I had a, a guest on who said that um, – you know, warp speed. We know we know how to do it now. We just we need to locate. We need to find a way to to tap into the uh, essentially the antimatter that's all around us. Um, but he he said that warp speed could be within our grasp in the next 100 years. Yeah, I saw that article too. It's totally possible. Um, it's it's all about money. Who has the 500 million dollars to? launch uh, uh, an endeavor like that to build build that. Um, there are a lot of different types of rocket propulsion on, on the books, different ones that we can reach even uh, um, fairly close to the speed of light if, if it's long-term acceleration. But it's, it's about building something that's feasible and quick, you know, and we, we just don't have the technology right now um, to build something. People, you know, and the analogy is, like, you know, people, I always use this analogy. It's like Christopher Columbus, you know, not building the wooden ships because he's going to wait on airplanes before, he, you know, to go to America. That's not really possible. Right. He's going to go no matter what. Right. So we've got, basically, we got is dingy little ships, sails going to Mars, and eventually we'll get better. Technology will get better. 
and and uh, what about these intergenerational uh, ships? You're talking about having uh, um, people in space for yeah. for generations. So it could be a mm-hmm. hundred years. Um, yep. in, and this would be uh, the idea, of course, is going to to, to distant stars or or. Yeah, it- Eventually, we'll have to find a habitable planet, and a habitable planet means something that's comparable to Earth. Um, we are slowly starting to learn that there are lots of habitable, not habitable planets, but a lot of extrasolar planets in the solar, in the universe. And we just need a habitable planet that's relatively close, a couple of light years away, and it'll be generation ships that'll get there thousands of years later. Um, how do we do that? Could it be frozen embryos? Uh, that eventually awaken and robots will, will be the parents or the generation ships where it's the great, 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 great grandkids that eventually reach the final destination. Um, cryogenics, so we put uh, a population to sleep and eventually wake them up as we get there. Those are all possibilities, but the bigger picture is eventually if we're going to survive, we have to find a habitable planet to actually survive on. And Mars, at, at this point, is not is not really the ticket. Boy, there are just there are no shortcuts here. There's no magic wand. Uh, this is hard sledding ahead of us, <laughs> isn't it? I I, 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 re- I think if you look at technology, how you know catapulted in just the last fifteen twenty years. I think I think uh, about one hundred twenty, maybe one hundred two hundred years from now, um, that'll be a possibility. We'll have better engines. Um, it'll be a point where Mars is just a, you know, it's, it's a trip down the road, maybe a month or two, and perhaps thousands of years from now, if we haven't killed ourselves off in a war or something, um, we'll, we'll, we'll have some really cool technology, better engines that'll get this really, really a lot faster, um, even past, uh, beyond the solar system. All right. Uh, we have about, uh, I don't know, four and a half minutes uh, left. And yeah. I I, um, I couldn't let you go without talking about, I mean, you have a very interesting background. Uh, I mentioned the Medal of Valor for your, your intelligence work in Iraq. And, of course, we have the Center for Planetary Science. Um, but you are also, you are involved in this documentary on the Skinwalker Ranch out in, uh, is that Ballard, Utah, I believe. Tell me about yeah, that. that. How did you become involved in that? Yeah, so... Um I'm, I like to study uh, bows um, on a part-time basis. It used to be a really almost a full-time basis since I got a real job that pays the bills. So one of my one of my cases was from various people who witnesses who said, "Okay, you got to come out to Skinwalker Ranch." And so my team and I um, went out there. Uh, and we investigated the ranch for a couple of nights, and it was a really good experience. We did see some strange stuff, a couple of strange orbs, a couple of strange uh, shadows here and there, um, unusual movement on the ranch. But uh, it was a shotgun investigation, a drive-by, and I hope to go back. Um, I couldn't really make any conclusive evidence of what that orb was or what the strange shadows were, but I, I would love to go back and investigate it. It's a very eerie place. Um, I, w- I, we interviewed a lot of people, dozens of witnesses out there, including the sheriff, state police, the, the, the tribal police. And what's interesting is that for every person we asked, uh, one would say, oh my God, there's been crazy, strange activity, UFO, paranormal, you name it. And then you can interview the person right next door. 
and they would say, I haven't seen anything, and they've been there for 20, 35 years. So the the whole, if I if I've got one minute left, the the uh, I guess the the theory is that Skinwalker Ranch is a portal. It's a portal for something uh, for strange activity, um, and this this thing they call this 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 entity can manifest itself to whatever it wants. It can manifest itself to an alien, uh, a werewolf, um, a skinwalker, uh, black triangles, ghosts, demons. Um, and that that's why we went to go investigate, is to see what is this thing, why wasn't it there. The big conspiracy is that, and this is what your audience is going to like, is that the ranch is owned by Bigelow, and a yes, uh, yes. big conspiracy guy, and the... The guards. There's actually guards there. Uh, it's a company called URS. Uh, URS used to be EG&G. It's the same company that uh, that protects Area 51. So currently, so it's currently the same. And he's very big that, into private uh, space exploration as well. Yeah, he's a, he's a, he's, a, he's big into that as well. So is he not building? Is a big little, isn't he building that some of these habitats that he thinks could be used on Mars? He's building ones for orbit. For for orbital orbital ah, okay. uh, habitation hotels in space, All right. but the same technology um, it's also being uh, studied for habitats, not just on on uh, Mars but also on the Moon. Okay, so sorry to interrupt, but so back to the ranch. So yeah, Bigelow yeah. owning this ranch uh, and the mm-hmm. security involved in the sec- the uh, the camo guys, right? The camouflage guys. Yeah. Area so 51. apparently the, the 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 conspiracy is that Bigelow is. Is trying to exploit the the uh, this portal that's there for perhaps um, uh, wormhole travel. We you know figure out if, if, if there is a portal there. First off, um, can it be used for other purposes, including uh, space travel? So that that's the theory. Um, at least that's uh, one of the theories. It's an. I mean, I mentioned your resume being kind of a, a mixed bag. Uh, mm-hmm. What are your your colleagues? I mean, it's a pretty conservative group, is it not? When we're talking about astrophysicists, uh, what do they yeah, make so of your your extracurricular activities? They uh, they love it. In fact, most scientists I know are all closet uh, UFO lovers and things like that. My, my oh, is that right? Is That's interesting. I didn't oh, know that. Oh yeah, of course. Uh, my story is a little different. You know, here in the military, I was injured, unfortunately, so um, had to get out of the military and. Went to college to study uh, astrophysics, and that's so two careers. But nevertheless, it's still a hobby. Um, as long as I, when it comes to science, I stick to the scientific process, and when it comes to pseudoscience, I stick to pseudoscience. I don't try to mix the two. I can use my background and skills uh, to study UFO phenomena, uh, but I have to be careful in not crossing that line. And most people understand that. So I'm, I'm still being published. I'm still writing books um, because. The two never actually, you know, cross waters. Well, I am uh, very pleased that we finally met uh, Professor Paris, and I hope you'll come back again and again. Thank you for this. Okay. All right, buddy. Thanks for everything. Thank you. And the website is planetary-science.org. There he goes, Professor Antonio Paris from the Center for Planetary Science, the next generation of space explorers. All right, uh, once again, the website, strangeplanet.ca or strangeplanet.tv. Everything's there under one roof. Please check it out. Uh, the website, uh, strangeplanet.ca, and uh, follow me on Twitter. Say hi, at Richard Serrett. And as always, follow the truth. <laughs>